My name is Christopher Thomas Plant. My name is Russ Frustick. Welcome to the Resties, where the rest of the best discuss the best of the rest. This week we're talking about movies and TV shows. What? Did I did I get the notes wrong? I thought we did that the other week. Yeah, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody. We've got Double Fine Psych Odyssey to talk about. A 22-hour and change documentary about Psychonauts 2, but really about like how incredibly difficult it is to make anything creative. Uh, and also, The Last of Us, the TV show, and a book. It's going to be a full episode. We're running the gamut on everything that isn't video games, but it's all <laughs> tangentially related, so it's okay. Is anything else going on in life? Well, I, I guess I had a question for you. Are you feeling better? You were sick the last time we recorded. Um, you know, you know, about about as good as I can feel after ten days and change of uh of medicine. <laughs> are you? Are, yeah. Are you the sort of person that like cocoons when you're sick, or do you try to work through it, power through it? If you, will? I'm the sort of person that has a five year old in my house. What is this cocooning? <laughs> I don't know what a cocoon is anymore. No, I I get sick and then I get as much medicine as I can and then um and then I try to find sleep wherever it's available to me. Yeah, it's sort of just holding off to your life, and I'm sort of gathering now that the idea of like any moment of healthiness kind of just doesn't exist for several years of a, a human being's life. Right. I don't think healthiness exists for the rest of my life, right? Yeah, I think that's probably It's true. all down. It's a sled ride to the bottom, you know? That's what they call everything after, like, 35. Now. I guess I just didn't factor in the idea that, like, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for myself. One person in my house for the last, I don't know, five months has been sick at one time. Like You're not saying span. who, though. Well, it varies. Oh, so, oh! I I thought you were like trying not to assert blame. No, no, <laughs> like, no. One person, I'm not, my, my small little child, uh, is is one of the culprits for being sick. Sure, and probably the reason we're all sick. The vector, but the but as you, I'm sure, are aware, he'll get better, and then the rest of us will be lingering in his. It's like he's like crop dusting the apartment with his germs. Yes, and we're just walking right through it behind him. That is true. When you say it's like he's crop dusting, you mean quite literally he's just like shitting. He's also doing that, yes. Everywhere. Yes. Yeah. That it, that might be what's getting us all sick. I guess I, do, I, I just wish I could hold it down a little more with a little more dignity, but I don't know that there is a way to do it. No, there's no dignity. If there's one thing for, I mean, we have plenty of listeners who don't have kids and you're thinking about it. I don't know. Maybe it's five, 10, 20 years away. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Go ahead. Do it. Nobody's stopping you. But don't expect to bring your dignity with you. <laughs> Leave it at the door. Burn that dignity up right where you stand. Exactly. You're never going to need it again. People are going to be like, oh, I can't believe you did that stupid thing in college. And it's like, go right ahead. You know, all the dignity is going to be gone in a while anyway. Might Doesn't as well. matter. Yeah. Spend it while you got it. Yeah. Anyway, do you, want to, do you want to go talk about video game stuff? Let's do it. Cool. I'll see you on the other side. Okay. First things first. Double fine psych odyssey. Is it the psych odyssey? 
I don't know. It, it's what it's in capped too, where it's like psych, and then it's one word Odyssey. Yeah, but the O is capitalized. Which Camel is like, Case. Oh yeah, it makes oh it it makes my skin crawl when I see that for some. That's reason. okay. It's not really the point. It's I, not I, the point. I don't even remember that. That's the title. It's effectively the when the I it's lunchtime and I type in Double Fine YouTube uh-huh. channel and then I scroll down and I see thirty two or however many episodes there are installments to this enormous documentary and then i and i watch one during lunch yeah i've been doing that for the last month right right so it's yeah it's 22 hours 30 some parts and you never know what you're gonna get sometimes a part's like you know 20 or 30 minutes long sometimes it's two hours long which i think is what happened to you when you thought hey i'm i'm right on track i'm gonna see this whole thing before we record this episode and then one of those big two hour honkers just like popped in and yeah, I'm I'm about four episodes from the finish line. Uh, thankfully, COVID hasn't happened yet, so maybe it <laughs> oh, won't yeah. happen. Maybe in their universe, they didn't have COVID. No, I'd imagine it does happen. But I'm I'm very close, and and uh, man, it's been quite the ride. I guess for you, you and I, really, both of us. What do you feel like this is doing? that we, as people that have been covering the industry for as long as we have, many years, what do you feel like you're, what level of insight are you getting into the process that you hadn't had before? Like infinite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I think this is by far, not hyperbole, and I know I can be hyperbolic, I think it is by far the best documentation of video game development process that exists right now. Is it a little heartbreaking to me that it came from an inside of a studio? I mean, kind of. It's a little weird. I can't believe that a studio would voluntarily give up this much information. I'm extremely grateful that they did. Um, it's it's everything, right? I mean, for to me, I feel like I saw everything but what is going on inside of the HR and legal office at any given time. Um, and even some of the interviews felt like they probably should have been in one of those offices. Yeah, I mean, it, they do. I think it they do get pretty um, direct and honest, especially about like, you know, working relationships between different people and what's landing and what's not uh, and and how people work together and how maybe some people aren't great at leadership roles and some people are better at leadership roles they speak pretty directly about Tim Schafer, who's the head of the studio, and where his skill sets lie. And you're right; it, it doesn't feel like they're holding back at really anything, which again is shocking because I'm not entirely sure what the upside is for a studio like Double Fine, apart from the fact that, like, when they kickstarted. Uh, so this is the second documentary, we should say, that Double Fine has really released, long-form documentary. The first one was based on Broken Age, which was their adventure game. It came out a couple years ago. I believe it was called The Double Fine Adventure or something like that was the name of that documentary. And it was a similar idea, but this, obviously, is a much more enormous project with way more people, way more budget, and uh, a longer kind of lead. So you really do see, like, from beginning to end... The pre-production process, deep in production, hitting alpha, hitting beta, and then eventually release. Yeah, and like that, all of that stuff, as you bullet pointed it, right, 
We've seen that in documentaries about games. We've made that, like at Polygon. Yeah. Where it's like, and here's how Alpha works. And, you know, here is, you know, why it was hard. You know, they really struggled with this part of the game. And it's kind of like anecdotal or a summary of events, right? Yeah. Because it has to be, because we're not writing 30,000 word books about a single games development right right, right. Or, or yeah dedicating a full-time video staff that is literally going into the office for seven years alongside yeah. the team and that's what's weird about this is it feels somewhere between um like reality television of just like hey what's it like being at this office all the time right mm-hmm. feels somewhat like kind of a, a standard documentary of like hey how are video games made and then I would say the most sizable chunk is like almost like a, uh, an adaptation of office gossip and office conversations and office drama. Um, the any any office has in adapting it into a video series. Like it, it's bizarre how how much. Um, how much I feel like I know about how people in this office feel about each other. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that's like really unusual. So an example I'll give is um, James Marion is one of the uh, design members who joins very, very early on in the series, basically right when Psychonauts 2 starts. And I actually know James. I taught James uh, at NYU Game Center many, many years ago. Um, And a very nice man. Um, but very, very junior when he starts. He effectively doesn't have any design experience. Yet. Yeah, I think he was an associate level designer. Yeah, and and we hear one of the first things we see is a conversation between his boss and Tim Schaefer where Tim clearly is skeptical of this hire, like clearly. And throughout the entire thing, we see his relationship with Tim Schaefer kind of evolve. And Tim, like, kind of roasts him throughout i would say the first half two-thirds of the documentary and it's it's not mean but it's certainly some tough love um and it's it's just unusual to see that it's unusual to then see um the the interviews with james where he talks very openly about how he feels as a member of the team how he is connecting with some people and not with other people um and then i guess like his kind of art collides with the the most shocking art to have included, which is the the head of the game's design midway through. I mean, are we are we how how are we with spoilers on this? I mean, I guess spoiler alert. Yeah, I guess yeah. spoiler alert. These are things that are also like they're not news. secrets. If you if you actually were following the development of Psychonauts, they were pretty direct in uh, their fig backing videos and stuff like that, talking about that like the project lead was no longer at Double Fine when the game launched. And yeah. so at some point in the game's development cycle, like several years in, I think three years in, they moved away from the original uh, project leader, who I believe was Zach McClendon. And that was like a major shift for them. Yeah, and, and, and that is, I don't know, of 22 hours, I would say like a good seven of them are gradually that, that kind of... Um, Culture clash. Yeah, you see that conflict studio. sort of bubbling uh, yeah. as as people are like leaving the studio over arguments that they've not specific, not necessarily specifically with him, 
but their vision for like what they see as the game or that what they see as the studio doesn't ne- necessarily match with what Zach was brought in to do, which was like basically design a game with level design and gameplay design first and then layer in art and and music and whatever. And that is pretty contrary to Double Fine's tradition, which is usually like kind of an art first or a narrative first mentality. Yeah. And um, I think just seeing that sort of manifest throughout the the course of the documentary is super, super fascinating. Yeah. I think what's perhaps most interesting is, and maybe the, you know, it's, it's interesting to me just by having like covered the industry for as long as I have, but maybe not interesting to people that are just like casual documentary viewers. Like, I don't know that this lands with like a person that like just likes documentaries because it's an enormous amount of footage and there aren't necessarily like capital V villains here. Like they talk at one time when Zach leaves or what, however the actual terminology was for his departure, they talk, uh, Tim is like, look, this is not like a riot situation where there was like a sexual harassment situation or something like that. It was, it was a major like cultural, uh, incompatibility but there wasn't like that high drama that you would expect from a king of kong for example and because of that i mean it might not have the like splash of a traditional documentary but i find it to be much more honest and much more realistic to what a lot of you know office politics are like it's like there's going to be this conflict and the question is is there a way to work through it or is it a situation where the there's just like no way to solve this problem apart from like having personnel changes. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you of like, there's no like clear villains and like, that's okay. Yeah. I think that there is sometimes can be a tendency, even when you're like, when, you know, we've worked together for a very long time it, in work experiences, you can get really frustrated and be like, Oh, this person is like, I don't know, out to get me or trying to undermine me or doing any of these things. Most of the time, it's just a difference of opinion of how to get things done. Yeah. And being able to spend so much time, so much time with all of these people and really get to know each of their their kind of viewpoints on how to be an artist and how to be a creative and to watch those gradually clash and, you know, for some to win out over others. It doesn't end up feeling like... um, I guess, a really toxic workplace where, you know, you have sides kind of battling against each other. It it feels kind of like you said that eventually Tim steps in and says, well, no, it's not that there are sides. This is how we've always done it. And yeah. maybe thinking that we should do it a different way it had really good intentions. You know, I'm sure that there was a desire to professionalize to avoid things like crunch, to avoid things like, you know, design confusion. But at the end of the day, Double finds the double fine way that that way of putting the art first, putting the narrative first is so cooked into the company that you can't really disentangle it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you met, you mentioned crunch as well, which is obviously a big part of the doc as well. And the, some of the, you know, most intense moments of it revolve around like, are people, do f- people feel obligated to work, uh, you know, long hours, uh, you know, I know, Tim has been very vocal about having creating an anti-crunch atmosphere, but there's also this element of there's a lot of creative people in the office that 
have an enormous amount of passion for, let's say, they're a you know art designer for a level, and they feel like putting those extra two hours in at the end of the day is going to make the difference between them being happy when they play the level at launch versus not. But then there's other people that like reasonably want to go home right on schedule and they feel like they're being undermined by people that like don't have those responsibilities. So there's also that conflict, which is again, like really tricky. How do you convince someone, hey, it's actually not healthy to work all night on the thing because it's detrimental not only you, but the project at large. Yeah. There's a degree to which like people are going to kind of do what they want. You can't lock someone to their desk. So it's it is genuinely tricky. Yeah, there's a really challenging moment um, later on where a designer who I think she's been like in games for 10 years, but is relatively new to the studio and still is like, you know, more junior than the people who've been at Double Fine for 20 some years and change and have been working in the industry since, you know, we were little kids. Um, And this conflict of she is really worried and concerned that they are like heading towards crunch and I think says something about a slippery slope. And we see Tim Schafer react very strongly to that. Like he's like offended and he's like, that's bullshit. You know, I've seen crunch, you know, I think he said something like there was a slippery slope and we had to climb all the way up it, Mm -hmm. you know, to get here. You know, we did the hard part of getting out of that. And what is so difficult about watching that is both of these people are coming from places of like extreme vulnerability yeah and they're bringing so much of their past and they're so um they're so not blinded but like so so they're so stuck in in their personal experiences that they can't see the the other side of it like that the this the designer who's bringing this up is coming from a real place of sincerity and wanting to protect themselves and the people around them mm-hmm. from having worked at places like EA or Activision and and at the same time yeah i i i especially uh, as a manager i can relate to tim where it's like i work so hard to get here we're not even in the bad part yet and i'm already feeling accused of doing the wrong thing and it's like, oh, I just that that part like broke my heart for just every person in the room. There was like no, there was no win there. It yeah. just felt sad. And I and I think um, that designer left like that day. Yeah, I mean, I, I, they were pretty clear about saying that like it wasn't specifically because of that meeting that they left. Yeah, but you know, that's the that's it's the what thing. led it's to like, that meeting, right? A yeah. lot of people have those breaking points in not just in game design, but in general, where they're like, this is clearly not the place I should be and I need to move on. And um, and seeing a lot of that, like even for people, uh, Anna Kipnis was someone who was at Double Fine for since its inception and leaves over the course of this uh, development cycle because of those, you know, stressors and, and conflict points. I guess I was wondering for you, Yeah. even though it is, I 100% agree, this is like the most thorough, comprehensive portrayal of game de- game development from start to finish. Do you feel like this is, I, I couldn't help but feel like while watching this, the way this game was made is very contrary to the way games like this are made these days. Which is to say, like, the scale of this game yes. is, like, 
uh, like games are not designed in the way that Psychonauts 2 is designed, which is to say like Psychonauts 2 essentially has a hub area and then has like eight or so very bizarre, discrete, like totally different looking and playing levels that kind of feel like their own mini game in yeah. their own. So you had these teams that were kind of focused very specifically on individual levels. They don't, intentionally, they don't make up a whole in some way because each level is so its own thing. Yeah. Um, the narrative ties it all together, but as a gameplay experience, like they can feel very disparate. So the game was made with these, like it's almost like you had eight little indie studios working and trying to figure out a way to unite all these things into one single game. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the bigger problem is that this is a studio that shouldn't make games this big, which I think actually James Marion says at a, maybe multiple points throughout, and everybody's like, no, 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 you're wrong. Like this is we're we're here to do this, and I think I think he's making honestly a very fair point, which is. When was the last time Double Fine made something of this scale? There's nothing even There's, close to it. Yeah, nothing nothing close. And even the original Psychonauts was like a much smaller project than this. This is was huge. Right. And I think I think even Tim Schafer and the people running Double Fine understood that when they hired Zach at the beginning, right? They yeah. were bringing in somebody who had experience on big AAA projects. And they brought in some design help that also had had that experience. And at the end of the day, the culture of the studio won out over, you could say the quality of the product, but at the end of the day, I think the quality of the product actually turned out quite well, but it had to go through a hell of a lot to get there. Yeah. And I, I'm i very curious now that they're under the Microsoft banner and the Xbox banner, and they went through seven years of this, right? Um, if everyone is just happier making smaller projects again, yeah, I you um, know they get bought by Microsoft during the documentary as well, and it's very clear that th even though they were in pretty dire straits from a money standpoint, because Starbreeze was their initial publisher, Starbreeze imploded in the most dramatic fashion possible, and they were pretty hard up. But when you think about uh, Double Fine from a historical standpoint, all of their games were like a quarter the size of Psychonauts 2. And the only reason this game became so enormous was because of, you know, it was a crowdfunding element that raised a ton of money. And also they um, had this like pedigree of this franchise that everyone loved and they knew they had to at least match, if not dramatically best, what the original game brought because they had all this weight to it. I think when Microsoft came in, they were not necessarily looking at Psychonauts 2 as a representation of what they were buying. They were looking at every other project they made, which are three to four hour, small, art-driven projects that relatively can stick to a, a timeline because they're like scoped in the right way. Yeah. And why that's great for Microsoft, Microsoft wants, let's say, one game from Double Fine a year for Game, for game Pass. I don't know what the actual cadence will be, but I'm sure every other game that they release from here until who knows will be smaller projects that will go up on Game Pass. Anyone can play them that has Game Pass. It's kind of a perfect fit. Like of all the studios that Microsoft has acquired, it's one of the best fits because they make games that are exactly the right size for Game Pass. 
and yeah. and exactly as creative as they should be because a lot of these games aren't necessarily like oh that's going to sell millions and millions of copies they could be a little niche sometimes they made a fucking a nesting doll game <laughs> like they make niche yeah. weird games that aren't going to guarantee to sell but they uh for someone for a subscription service like that's what they want yeah and so and, and it, that creative freedom and personal freedom and workplace ideally will fit better under that banner with with all that financial stability i think one of the other overarching storylines or threads of this documentary is not just hey it's really really hard to make an art project with this many people over this much time but also it's really hard to run a company and balance that out with with those goals yeah and they they do a fair amount of going into the the finances here and showing just how hard it is for them to really balance from one investor or one supporter one publisher to the next while they're doing all these small projects and i think the hope was for you know psychonauts 2 to be a big project that would buy them some breathing room yeah um and it, it certainly was not that <laughs> like, you know, they, they did get paired with um, Starbreeze and that was a disaster. And it, it feels just it, it, I it's hard to imagine that they would have survived the pandemic or even this game um, had had that acquisition not come in. Uh, that said, pretty depressing when you think about it in terms of independent studios, because here is what appeared to be one of the most successful independent studios and they lived in constant terror of their finances. Yeah. Uh, so, it, yeah. yeah. It really is, goes to show how tenuous this business can be and just how difficult it is to make games. It's like so many different skill sets that are like the total like polar opposite of one another. And everyone is like unifying those skill sets to make something that like frequently breaks and you just sort of have to like figure out a way to fix it or hope it doesn't happen super often. Uh, I, you know, by the, I haven't quite finished it, but as I've been watching this, all it did was reaffirm my decision to never make games of this <laughs> size. Or it's just like, just not make games. this does not look appealing to me at all. I like working with people, but the amount of control that you have to cede to the process of like, demands of like fucking memory leaks and whatever else yeah. could go wrong with a with a game of this size or even a smaller game super stressful uh mad props to everyone not only on, in this project in the um that made psychonauts 2 which i really did enjoy but just in general like the game making process is so fraught and all i could hope for you is a like creative enthusiasm for what you're making and i hope you're happy if you are making games right now and b i hope for protections long term for the game industry so that you know you hear all these people complaining about where they used to work before coming to double fine and that sucks that that's like the default experience for a lot of people in this industry and i think um really all all we can hope for is people take steps to uh, make their environments a better place i i had one more question for you yeah. And it's kind of going back to the the beginning. How do you feel about this level of access? <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that as, you know, a member of the press. Sure. Transparency is king. But this is a lot. Like, I was kind of, again, shocked at times what 
people in a variety of positions were exposing themselves to, whether that is, you know, leadership saying things that will, you know, however many years later be seen by their junior employees or junior employees who don't have a lot of experience in the industry being really open um, and, you know, documenting that forever. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's good. I think it's good overall. And you asked me up top, you know, like, is it how it, like, who does this help? All right. I don't, I don't know how much it helps Double Fine, but I think it helps all of us who care about this industry and who care about video games and care about creative people and, and being able to have this shared experience. I, I just, I would recommend to everyone who is especially coming out of college and about to go into a creative field, watch this because I yeah. feel like you'll, you'll learn so much in such a short amount of time. But that said, how do you feel about, you know, in the future if if other studios did this and they put it in their contracts that, hey, you need to also sign your rights to be in this sort of documentary? Yeah, uh, it it won't happen, yeah, realistically. Right. Uh, you know, as I said, I don't see a lot of upside for Double Fine in this case. You know, some studios have tried to do the, like, radical transparency thing not to this extent, but like, you know, releasing like weekly blog, video blogs and stuff like that showing life in the studio. But obviously they're pretty heavily edited in terms of what they show and don't show, limiting it to the stuff that is only going to be beneficial to them. Um, I think that'll probably continue to some extent, but you're never going to necessarily see anything that's this exposed. And... So really the upside for for this project is an educational one because it does show you a pretty unvarnished uh, portrayal of what one game is, you know, what it took to make this one game. Um, I don't think it's representative of everywhere, obviously, but at least we have something that we can point to. Uh, you know, I think this documentary, I think paired with Jason Schreier, friend of the show, who has written two very excellent books that portray video games in like a pretty dramatic and intense light and often a negative light. I think both those books and this documentary are required reading for anyone that is like, I want to make games for a living. <laughs> and, you know, unless it's like just something you're going to sit at home and as like a passion project, you're going to do it in your spare time. Good on you. Go for it. But if you your dream is to like join a studio like a Bungie or a Double Fine or a wherever, you need to absorb this stuff first before paying a bunch of money to a uh, full sale or some other, uh, you know, college that teaches game design because you need to know what you're getting into and you don't want to sit with a bunch of debt. And then realize, oh, God, this is not at all what I was expecting. I thought I would draw a flower and then it would be in the game two days later. It's, it's very we call it flower. It's flower. That's how flower was made. <laughs> yeah. I, my, my, my only other passing thought is, is what a eulogy for office culture. And I am not the person who's like, hey, we all need to go back to the office. By any stretch of the imagination. Couldn't if I wanted to because I live far away from New York. Um, but there are parts of this documentary that really made me miss the early days of like our job when, when we worked together before Polygon um, and like going out with friends from the office after work and spending like 
so much time in such a close proximity that it does have that kind of um, college or dormitory environment. I think back on um, like OneUp.com and the OneUp show, yeah, which I think captured a lot of this. And and yeah, I, I um, I'm not sure like how much of that exists post pandemic or endemic, or how much of it will ever come back, and it will be replaced or evolve into something equally interesting and cool, I'm sure. But I, you know, can still miss something that's gone. And there, I think uh, part of this documentary, again, one kind of final thread, is watching the evolution of their culture change. Um, and, and it had changed, quite honestly, before the pandemic even happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but it was on its way to that. Um, and you can see all, of, especially the people who had crunched, really grapple with it, because there were a lot of people who you know now are in their forties, um, who really, I mean, these people, they grew up with each other, and their best friends, and some of their best memories are from that time, and you can tell it pains them to, uh, I don't know, kind of like square peg round hole of, hey, that thing probably was really, really unhealthy for me, and I don't want other people to do it. Also, that was the happiest time of my life. And that's like, it's just weird and interesting. Yeah, it's, it is. Um, should we go to the other side and talk about some zombie things that aren't technically zombies? Let's do it. Cool. Okay. The Last of Us TV show happened. I watched none of it. <laughs> you didn't watch a minute. Of I it. did not watch a minute of it. And no. I did that on purpose because I wanted to be completely blank slate for you to share your feelings <laughs> to me. Uh, I appreciate that. And okay. I, I'll do my very best to uh, impersonate uh, Craig Mazin as I do this. Okay, thank you. Uh, you might recall several weeks ago, I think it was on a Besties. I watched the first episode and we talked a little bit about it and I was very curious. So I wa- you know, I watched the first episode and I thought it was tremendously well done and not a show that I would want to watch from a I guess emotional standpoint because it didn't seem like super fun to watch something that was just like as brutal as the game was that I already played and I already knew the story. And yet here I am, nine episodes later, and I've actually watched all of it. And I think that's a testament to the performances, the writing, the uh, production design, which is just stellar. And um, I guess, uh, yeah, so I, I guess we're out on the other side. And and thing one, I think perhaps the most shocking of all of it mm. is just how insanely close it is to the game. Like... I don't think there's ever been a more direct adaptation of a video game ever that like there are multiple scenes in this where the edit cadence, like the shots that they're picking are directly lifted from the shots that were used when they made the game. And that is wild because it works extremely well on TV. And maybe I shouldn't be surprised because in those cases they are, you know, cutscenes and they use filmic ideology when making cutscenes to pick angles and stuff like that. But I don't know. I'm just well, so used I, to I have, a, I have a question about that. Yeah. Why? 
not 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 like why isn't like oh why do it if it works sure but sure. like why do this entire thing if if you're going to basically recreate something like that well i a couple of things one it's not a hundred percent of a recreation obviously you don't shoot as you, many things that's for sure <laughs> that's true there there is less shooting although there is quite a fair a fair amount of shooting so it's not all one for one shot for shot. I mean, you know, the there was a the Nick Offerman uh, relationship episode obviously got a lot of attention. That was a probably the largest departure in the entire series mm. from events that happened in the game. Uh, you know, you met Bill, but they had already him and his uh, partner had already split by then. So you didn't see this like loving relationship that they had. But apart from that, it was all very consistent. And I guess the answer to why, I think there are an enormous number of people that would never have experienced this story had it not been presented to them in the format of a TV show. Like, Mm -hmm. my mom, shockingly, watched The Last of Us. Wow. I didn't think she would. She's not like a sci-fi person. She doesn't like zombies, Star Wars, like all that stuff. She rolls her eyes. But I said, hey, in passing, I was like, oh, by the way, there's this show on HBO. She does watch a lot of HBO shows. You should watch it. And it's by the way, it's based on a video game. And she has sat and watched all of it. And that, I think it was a big reason for it because it just like seemed to be missing this huge audience. And I, th- I also think it's an incredibly moving story and an interesting story that deserved like even more attention than it got when it, you know, was released. Um, and even in the multiple re-releases of the game. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm honestly thrilled that they took the time to make this like, oh my, I guess it's an homage to the original game, but also, you know, it feels like one of the best TV shows I've seen in a very long time. Do you, do you think it works better because there is, I mean, like you said, I know there's still shooting and I, I've not watched it, but you are not spending the bulk of your time walking around killing things. I mean, it wouldn't work as a TV show if you were like, Oh, I know. Oh, of course not. But also sure. like emotionally, right? Like, because at the end of the day, the game does that because they think the assumption, if you're going to spend that much money designing a game is, we need to let you kill stuff because well, that's what fun is. It's not only that. You're also making an interactive experience and like they well, weren't going to make basically well, what Telltale made. Well, right? no, but 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 that's the thing, right? That's the rub with video games in general is that it's, it's seeing that as the assumption. It's, well, we can't see, we can't see a way or we can't imagine a way or we don't want to spend, really, this is it. We don't want to spend money developing and R&Ding other ways of engaging with the world yeah. when shooting is right there. We know it works. So let's just throw it in, right? Like yeah. we, we can start making the game tomorrow. If you tell me your main verb of the game is shooting, we can just green light. But if you tell me, eh, you want to make right. a game You're going to walk this, around and like uh, think about poems. Well, not even think about poems. Like we, who knows? Like you, are you building things? Like there, there are other ways of engage. There are other verbs in the world, right? Sure. Um, but well, I, I'll, I think, I'll give... I think po- like, it's funny that you mentioned poems, but I think it's like words and guns are, <laughs> seem to be it. Um, and I think, you know, film has a much wider range of verbs because 
that's just not how the verbs are not directly tied to how the player or the viewer experiences the object. Well, just speaking about Last of Us, for example, like obviously Last of Us made by Naughty Dog. Naughty Dog is a studio that previously was best known for Uncharted, Crash Bandicoot before that, but Uncharted was obviously the most recent. And so basically they had a framework for a third person shooting game. And it's clear that like there was a drive to tell a more grounded, serious story using obviously some of the work that they had previously done for Uncharted, like some of the tech work and all that stuff could be used, but they could also, while they were doing that, tell something that had a little more depth than like the Indiana Jones stories of the Uncharted franchise. Yeah. I mean, I guess just to show my hand here, I get the sense with this, with the show and with, you know, creative talent from the game going on to work on the show. Neil Druckmann specifically. Neil Druckmann specifically. Yeah. That, yes, it feels like what the show is what was wanted, what Druckmann wanted to create. And I'm just putting words into somebody's mouth, but it feels as if like that's what you wanted to create all along, right? And that's kind of true of a lot of these cinematic games where it's like, we wanted to create a movie. I mean, you could say in some ways Hideo Kojima is guilty of the same thing, right? No, that but I I think he is also we... interested in the game design. Kojima specifically. Oh, I think Kojima, in... spe- yes, I, I agree. I'm just using that because everybody will say it if I yeah. do not mention him. But in Druckmann's case, this feels very like, this thing was a game. The shooting is there not because I loved creating game mechanics around shooting and, you know, um, puzzles, environmental puzzles. They're there because, like, that is the means of the opportunity. Like, that's what gets us to the stuff that I actually enjoy. Yeah, it's very clear, even through the, I I think, to some extent for Last of Us, the first one, and then in The Last of Us Part Two, it's very clear that, like, his focus was on the narrative, Mm. and he wasn't the game director of The Last of Us Part Two. He gave that uh, title, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the game director's name for that project, but you know, his focus is on the narrative and in so far as like that was his interest, like, yeah, the narrative is the closest thing to a, a movie that there is. And I'll just to differentiate the two games, I think I think The Last of Us Part Two is like an astonishingly good third person shooter shooting game, like like one of the best that I've ever played. Narratively, I think it kind of falls a little bit apart a little bit. But I think it's the inverse for the first game. I think the first game is like one of the best narrative experiences I've ever had in a game and like an okay but not great gameplay experience. Yeah, And yeah. so it, I guess, is not surprising to me that he would gravitate more to the narrative. It does also make me really curious about where the show is going given, I think, some of the critiques. And I, by critiques, I mean not the like awful troll critiques of the part two, but more of the like, I cannot the, imagine the second game as a TV series, especially the second half of that game. It's yeah, I it mean, just it, becomes like full on Walking Dead worst type of stuff. Yeah, it turns into there's a beat in the first game and in the show where Ellie basically has this moment of like abject horror where she has to murder someone, not murder, but like self defense, but still like has to kill someone, and. That effectively breaks her as a person, not to mention, and then the end of the game also kind of breaks her as a person. And then by part two, she's a, basically a broken human. Uh, events in part two, which I won't spoil here, 
break her even further. And then she kind of just turns into a husk. And how long can you follow someone that is a husk? And guess what? There's yet another husk waiting in the wings to also follow. So I do not, you're right. I do, don't know how it's going to shake out. Yes. How well, they're going to pace it. Specifically the entire Southern California stuff. I like, mean, that where the, where the second game goes in terms of silly zombie fiction. I think there is a lot of room for someone like a Craig Mazin who at this point I have like an enormous amount of respect for the work he's done both with Chernobyl and this. Oh my yeah that that, that is what makes me think I will go I will go and watch this is Chernobyl I think is I mean I think he's very smart about what works and what doesn't from a TV perspective. Mm. And so I'll be very curious to see how uh, he sort of puts more of his stamp or at least works with Druckmann to find ways to make the second season more impactful than it was. You know, the first season ends with this big morality question, would you or won't you make the decision that Joel makes? And the second season really doesn't have that decision or it doesn't have that moment yeah. with the second part of the game. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a question of whether they can find a way to approach it maybe in a more nuanced way that is not, well, violence, you know, if everyone chooses violence, then everyone just kills themselves, essentially. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, it, it's also um, going to be broken up into at least two seasons. Have know they like, confirmed that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've, they've said, I think, a couple times now. So, which I think is good, uh, especially because that the the back half of part two needs the most work. I, I well, here's that, what I'm gonna say. Yeah, season one of Last of Us is a perfect standalone story, as is the mm. first game of Last of Us. A perfect standalone story. If there was no more Last of Us after that ending, I would be totally fine with it because honestly, it it stands on its own like you yeah. understand that the relationship between these two people is forever changed based on decisions that were made and you don't necessarily need to paint in the lines of like what happened next i realize people care and want to know what happens to these characters even if the show is a little bit messy from a narrative standpoint just keep in mind that like we got one damn good arguably the best video game uh, adaptation anyone has ever done and uh, I'm pretty happy with that. I can't believe you forgot the Mario movie that fast. <laughs> it's not out yet. We don't know. No, oh, you're talking well, about the, the original. We, we did a whole episode on. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, no, uh, the directors uh, for Last Fest Part 2 were Anthony Newman and Kurt Marginow. Great. Uh, and I know just, uh, yeah. Neil was paired with a writer whose name I forget. And I wanted to make sure I call her out. Haley Wegren Gross was also the narrative lead on Last of Us Part Two, so it's important people remember uh, Haley's work as well. Nice. Um. Uh. Cool. I'm. I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it a shot. I. I feel like I have weirdly more warmth towards Last of Us One. Um. These days, <laughs> maybe it's just because of Last of Us Part Two. Um, that I Craig, so here's what I'm going to say. Those. Craig Mazin caught a lot of shit online for saying it's the, quote, best story video games has ever told. I, I realize people might disagree with the order, but it'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to not put it in my top five. I'll, I'll say that. I, mm, 
I think it's the best story that feels like a film. You know, like I, I, I think that's that's true. If what you conceptualize stories to be is like structurally correct in the way that film is structurally quote correct, right? But, yeah. But you know, if, if you start looping in, like basically all of role playing games, do I think that there are more interesting stories? out there than this 110 percent but are they going to be structurally correct in the way that we're supposed to talk you know three-part structure and all these things that people associate with good story i yeah i then i then i think last of us obviously gets in because it's so clearly going for that i know that's getting like really semantic but i just think that's i think it's a way of looking at games as needing to meet the standards of the the dominant cultural medium of the moment and i think yeah i don't i don't know i mean it's it's very good but like i i just i think it's it's a very good movie that that you can play (laughs) you know like that and that's how they did like that that it made a tv show like sure it but but like it's i think if i read it as a book i would be also moved is what i would say it would be some really Top level scholastic book fair stuff. I I'm, would be thrilled. Um, I just, I, I'm sorry. I'm showing too much of my opinion. Um, anyway, speaking of a book, we normally would be doing our um, our like other recommendations, but we both got sent a book. We did. I thought we could talk about for a second before we wrap up the show. Um, we got sent. It's called Retro Gaming. A Bite-Sized History of Video Games. It's by Mike Diver. It actually came out originally in hardcover, I think, in 2020. Uh, August 2020. Not a great time for just, like, the world. So you might have missed it. Uh, But it's coming out in hardcover right now. And I've been really enjoying it. But you know who's loved it? Mosey. Oh, yeah. discovered it a few days ago. And uh, it has been deeply loved. He has bent it uh, in every direction because he reads it at night and he pushes it to like, so it stays open on its own. Um, He spilled a cup of water on it this morning, so I can't refer to it because it's drying out and he's furious. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's just a really solid, I guess, like introductory to retro gaming. Um, I mean, it doesn't feel introductory just because it's so comprehensive. I was actually really impressed by how much is in there. Um, It it just kind of runs the gamut from like the ZX Spectrum to like N64 to, you know, uh, I don't know, more 3D, more recent 3D era stuff. All the way up to like PlayStation 2, GameCube, Xbox. Yeah. Um, and uh, every it's just like a lot of bite-sized kind of blurbs with interesting anecdotes and stuff like that uh, about these various projects and just like a ton of like really interesting factoids, stuff like that. And yeah, I really er- dug it. Earlier, I, I used Scholastic Book Fair read as an unfair and untrue diss to <laughs> our dear, dearly departed Last of Us. Um, here I mean it as like the best compliment in that if I had found this book when I was in like junior high or early high school, um, or I guess even like late elementary school, I would have been obsessed um, yeah. because it is it's it's deep, 
but not um, impenetrable. It's not written like um, a textbook, like a lot of these are. And it still has a sense of fun and whimsy that uh, a lot of coffee top coffee table books, I guess. Is that the right word? Coffee yeah, table coffee book? table yeah. books. That they often can lack. Um, it's hard to do this well. And also, you've written a book that is like the history of fun. I mean, we're getting up another plug here. But I feel like you know how hard it is to write these sorts of books that are covering so many topics in yeah. such a condensed area. When I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is like flashing me back to me writing my book. Uh, so it is structurally almost identical to the book that I wrote. Um, obviously, you know, mine covers the gamut of a lot of different things, and this is just retro yeah, games. Yeah, yours is all of fun, and this is just retro gaming fun, <laughs> but, like, who's counting? But it's very, it is very hard to write these sorts of books just because you are con- there's no flow to it because you're constantly starting from scratch after writing three paragraphs. So it it is can be a lot and this is a much larger book than what I wrote. So I am very impressed props because uh and 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 they got some really good art from the games and it, like my 20-month-old son is like riveted by the book as well just because he likes looking at all the pictures. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really good. Yeah. So uh, if you're curious about it, I I believe it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I saw the hardcover version. I don't know about the soft cover version. Oh, never mind. I out. lied. The soft cover version came out a week ago. Oh, okay. It's in paperback. Uh, and yeah, sixteen ninety five on Amazon. What a that is a deal. steal. That's a steal. Get it. Buy it. That's What's that's it our review. When we like something. Buy it! What's it called again? Uh, it's called Retro Gaming, A Bite-Sized History of Video Games by Mike Diver. Good work, Mike. Good job, Mike. Um, anything Anything else on your end? I think that's it. Oh my gosh, we did it. We talked about so much. All in all, what, what, what is this, like 32 hours of entertainment that we condensed into into one hour of podcast for you. We crushed it. Wow. What what, what a favor we did for you, dear listener. Um, Well, that's it. My name is Christopher Thomas Plant. His name is Russ Freshnick. This has been another episode of The Resties, where the rest of the best discuss the best of the rest. Resties. Resties.